knows what a mixed metaphor is? Who knows what a mixed metaphor is? Give me an example. Okay, good. So two different references in the same sentence or same statement. Yeah, so a mixed metaphor is using two different images that don't really fit together in a single statement. That's what a mixed metaphor is. So for example, as one movie line goes, well, it looks like the cows have come home to roost. Can anybody name, can anybody name that movie reference? All right, Naked Gun 2, not 2, but 2 and a half. There it is. Or is Biff the bully to Marty McFly in Back to the Future says? So why don't you make like a tree and get out of here? Trees don't really get out of here, but that's a mixed metaphor. Poets as well do this. T.S. Eliot opens one of his poems with a line about forgetful snow. William Butler Yeats does the same thing when he writes about treading on dreams. So strictly speaking, snow can't be forgetful and dreams cannot be tread upon. But the pairing of those metaphors in both cases actually allows us to see true things that we might not actually see with just literal language. That's the point of it. In Jonathan Lehman's uh, little book on church membership, he talks about this very thing in relation to the church. He explains that when the New Testament authors start talking about the church and its members, they push mixing metaphors into hyperdrive. So to give you an example... Paul talks about being baptized into a body, as if one can be immersed into a torso. It's a mixing of metaphors. Peter talks about Christians as living stones, itself a mixed metaphor. And then he says that these living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a royal priesthood. Can anyone think of other metaphors used for the church in the New Testament? Other metaphors used for the church. Just go ahead and start spouting them out. Say that again. Bride of Christ, good. What else? Don't be shy. Do what? All right. Well, guess what? We're going to learn many more metaphors on the church this morning, okay? So let's open up our Bible and read about what God says about the church because we're going to be staring at one big mixed metaphor when we look at it. So let's go ahead and, and do that. So when we, for instance, when we read that the church is like a body or like a flock of sheep or branches of a vine, a bride, a temple, God's building, a people, exiles, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, salt of the earth, the Israel of God, the elect lady, and on and on, right? It's like flipping through a photo album of images. And this just illustrates for us that the church is unlike anything on earth. The church is simultaneously family-like, body-like, flock-like. You get the idea. The question, of course, is what do we do with these metaphors? What's the church? That's what we're getting at this morning. So if you've been here for the past couple of weeks, you know that we've been tracing different themes throughout the Bible. In biblical theology, okay, this is just kind of a definition. Biblical theology is showing how each one of these themes or stories is part of the overarching story by one divine author that culminates in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So that all of Scripture must be understood in relation to Jesus. That's the point. 
It's how all these little parts of the story, all these little themes fit into the larger theme, the larger story of the divine author culminating everything in the person and work of Christ. We have to read Scripture, no matter where we're at, no matter what covenant we're in, we have to read Scripture in relation to Jesus. That's what biblical theology is. And today we're looking at one story. We're looking at one theme that's a part of the larger story of the Bible, which is summed up in eight words as we've talked about the past two weeks. Anybody know what that theme is? God's people in God's place under God's rule. So when Sam taught, I believe it was week three, kingdom through covenant, we're talking about God's kingdom rule. So we looked at that theme and how God uh, exercises that kingdom rule through covenants over his, over his people. Right? So we talked about kingdom through covenant. God um, expresses that kingdom rule through covenants. He exercises it over his people through covenants. We looked at God's rule in week three. Last week, we looked at God's people. Or, that's today. Last week, we looked at God's place. Okay? So we looked at God's place, starting out in the Garden of Eden and then ending in the temple city where God Almighty is the temple and the Lamb is the temple with God's people dwelling in his presence. Okay? So that was last week, God's place, looking at the uh, garden temple to the tabernacle to the temple and then to Christ and then on into us as the temple of God into then God himself, the Almighty and the Lamb in uh, Revelation 21. Today we're looking at God's people. We're going to be looking at God's people, and we're going to trace that theme all the way throughout Scripture. That's where we're going to begin, and then we're going to look at patterns in the story uh, that we see carried on throughout, and then we'll finish with a couple of things and just kind of bringing it all together. So that's where we're going this morning. So let's dive in. The story of God's people. Two weeks ago, we thought about how God establishes his kingdom or his rule through covenants. So in the beginning, Adam and Eve served as the original people of God in God's place, the garden. God establishes his kingdom through a covenant with Adam, which he then repeats with Noah. Then he establishes a special demonstration of his kingdom through a special covenant, or a special, yeah, a special covenant with Abraham, which would be the first of a special people. And that's where our story begins this morning. And what we're going to learn this morning is that God is in the business of creating a people for himself to live under his kingdom reign in his place. To put it another way, we'll learn from the Old Testament that the means by which God will display his glory and accomplish his saving purposes among all nations is through a people who image and who reflect that glory. We're going to be tracing that this morning. So turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis 10. Genesis 10. We've got to start there. And what do we see in chapter 10? We see a glorious genealogy that maybe when you read, you're kind of like, I really don't know how in the world that fits in. But we get a genealogy in what sometimes is called the table of nations in Genesis 10. And notice specifically how this genealogy is laid out. Noah has three sons. His three sons are listed, and then each of their sons are listed. So you've got Noah, and then, hopefully you can see this, 
right? And then from here, he's got three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, S-H-J for short, okay? He lists his three sons, and then he goes in, and those three sons enlist their sons. So verse 1 in chapter 10, these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The sons of Japheth, verse 2, he goes into his sons. Verse 6, the sons of Ham, then he goes into his sons. Verse 21, to Shem also, the father of all the children. Then he goes into those sons. Then we come to verse 32. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Well, how exactly did they spread abroad? Chapter 11, Genesis chapter 11. That hard, hard story about the Tower of Babel. So verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language in the same words. So as we see in the story, the people refused to obey God as their Lord, as their king. As a result, we get verse 8. Chapter 11, verse 8. The Lord dispersed from there, dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. Then what do we get starting in verse 10? Another genealogy of Shem. Now what is going on right here? That is interesting. We already had a genealogy of Shem back in chapter 10. So what's going on right here? Why do we need another genealogy? Well, I think the first thing that we need to notice is the different structures of these two genealogies. So in chapter 10, we get what we would call a horizontal genealogy. It lists all the brothers of Shem and their families. It's into all of that. So him, his brother, and their families. That's a horizontal genealogy. In chapter 11, though, the author is wanting us to focus in like a zoom lens on a camera into a special line of descendants, and that's the line of Noah's son, Shem. We can call this a vertical genealogy because it's looking at one man's family line rather than his brothers or his relatives. So, for instance, a vertical, you know, a vertical genealogy would consist of this, Shem, and then his son, and then his son, on down. Shem has a son who has a son who has a son, and on down. That would be a vertical genealogy. So it's focusing on Shem and his son and his son's sons. You get the picture. It finally culminates in who? Who does it culminate in? Shem's line. Who does that culminate in? In chapter 11, the end of it. Abram. That's right. Abram. Author's going somewhere. He's taking us somewhere. And so what we find in, we find in Genesis right here is that this is the, tor- the story of two seeds. Right? How do we see that? We've got to flip back to Genesis 3.15. Flip back there with me. Genesis 3.15. In cursing the serpent, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring, or literally seed, and her offspring, or seed. The horizontal genealogies of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, in one sense, trace out the seed of the serpent, all of fallen humanity, the wicked, those against God. The vertical genealogies trace out the seed of the woman. God specially called out people, those who were blessed, the righteous, 
And it's through the seed of the woman that gains victory over sin and over the serpent that will come later. So the book of Genesis takes special interest in tracing this righteous line of seed. It even serves as the backbone of the book that leads to the servant king who would come later. We can see this in chapters 12 through 50. So for instance, who do we follow in chapters 12 through 50? Somebody take a stab at it. Okay, keep going. Patriarchs, that's exactly right. Patriarchs are who? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jacob's 12 sons. Okay? That's what the whole latter half of the book of Genesis is all about. It's focusing in on that seed of the woman right there. The author's wanting to do that intentionally. He's not just kind of coming up with this. So in chapters 12 through 50, that's who it focuses on. The big picture of all this so far is this. God created humanity to image or represent him in his rule in the world. They didn't. And so God calls out a special line of people from all people to accomplish his purposes in creation of imaging him. That's what he's doing right here. Let's look more specifically at this called out people. So letter A there in your handout. Letter A, a called out special covenant members. So nation, seed, children. Now, I know that's a lot for a point, okay? Not trying to be, uh, it's not a preaching outline. That's just showing you kind of where we're going in that point, all right? So how does the Bible describe these called out members of God's special covenant? First, he calls them a nation, Genesis chapter 12. You can go there. Still in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. So God promises to make Abram into a great nation. This means, first of all, that Abraham is going to have a multitude of children, a multitude of offspring, physical descendants. Notice in verse 7, though. To your offspring or seed, I will give this land. So this also means that Abraham's offspring are going to constitute a nation, a state, a geopolitical entity. God is not just going to turn Abraham into a people He's going to put that people on the map so that they may reflect God's glory to the world by living in obedience to what? His law that would come later. In chapter 17, we learn that the Abrahamic people, the children of Abraham, or the seed of Abraham, were marked off by circumcision. Eventually, Abraham begets Isaac, who begets Jacob, who God renamed Israel, and then Israel had 12 children who became the heads of the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. So God's called out people are a nation. They're a seed. They're children. But before we move forward, we've got to rewind the tape because of some things that we missed that are earlier on in the text, which brings us to letter B. Son of God, son of man, image, king, priest, and more. It's a lot in a point. Two weeks ago, we saw that Abram, or sorry, that Adam, being created in God's image, was a kind of son of God, someone who looks and acts like his dad. And what does his dad do? Well, his dad is a king, and so Adam was to be a kind of king, like what we talked about last week. In the Gospel of Luke's vertical genealogy of Jesus in Luke 3.38 concludes this way. The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam the Son of God. 
So not only is Adam a son of God, but God also calls Israel his son in Exodus chapter 4, verses 22 through 23. And then calls David his son in 2 Samuel, and even in Psalm 2 that Cole preached a couple weeks ago. So not only is David a son of God, but he's also a king. So this son is a king as well. It's royalty. The image of God is the son of God, who is a son of man, who is a king, or who is the king. So as we saw last week, that Adam was a kind of priest because he was to work and to keep or to protect the garden. Sure enough, in Exodus 19, it refers to Israel as both priestly and kingly when God says, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. So to recap, we have the people of God, we have the people of God described in the language of sons of God, image of God, king, and priest. Image overload right now. Image overload. Those are just a couple of the metaphors used for the people of God in the Old Testament. We're going to see many more in just a minute. Letter C on your handout. Christ is the new Adam, new Abraham, new Israel, David, image, king, priest, son of man, son of God, seed of Abraham. All of it Christ takes upon himself. Now, when we turn to the New Testament, it's important that we don't move straight from Israel to the church. That's important. We're not just moving from one to the other. Israel's storyline isn't fulfilled in the church. It's fulfilled in Christ. So we've got to go to him first. Consider the opening words of the New Testament. Matthew 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So right here we see that in addition to Luke's genealogy, where Jesus is seen as the new Adam and God's son, Matthew shows us that Jesus is the new king. He's the new David. He's the new Abraham, or the seed of Abraham, as Paul speaks about in Galatians 3, 16. Jesus isn't just the savior of Israel, God's people. He is also the very embodiment of God's people as they should be the very embodiment of God's people as they should be. Jesus is the true Israel. Notice how this point is made in Matthew 2:15, where Matthew quotes from Hosea 11:1, 1, out of Egypt I called my son. Matthew right here is applying Hosea's use of the Exodus in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, and he's applying that to Jesus. So not only that, but Matthew tells the story of Jesus and his family fleeing from Herod down to Egypt and their return after his death in such a way that Jesus is actually reenacting the story of Israel. All this shows, as one author put it, Matthew believed that the return from exile promised in Hosea ultimately became a reality with the true son of Israel, Jesus Christ. So notice how this continues, this whole reenactment of the story of Israel. This embodiment is to evoke images of Israel in Matthew's readers' minds. So, if you go to Matthew chapter 2. Look with me at Matthew chapter 2. So as we just saw, okay, in Matthew 2, 19 through 20, Jesus returns to God's land. We get the kind of imagery that we get, or what it's to evoke in our minds, is Exodus from Egypt imagery. Then you move into chapter 3, verses 13 and 17. You get the baptism of Jesus. What is this to evoke in our mind? 
Ah, the crossing of the Red Sea. Okay? We're kind of following the story of Israel, so to speak, at the very beginning of Matthew. Jesus brings about a new exodus from sin. This is what we're going to see as it culminates in the, in the death and resurrection of Christ. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. He's fasting 40 days, 40 nights as well. That mimics the temptation in the wilderness of Israel for 40 years. Jesus is the perfectly obedient son of God with whom he's pleased. Then we come to Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. And right here, we arrive at Mount Sinai to receive the law. Jesus, seeing the crowds, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples, those who were his people, came to him, and he opened his mouth and he began to teach them this new law of Christ. So notice the connections. Jesus is the one who brings about a new exodus from slavery to sin. He succeeds in all the ways that God's people failed, and then he delivers his law to the people in the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew is showing us that Jesus fulfills all that God promised and intended for the nation of Israel, their restoration, their return from exile, the land, the blessing. He fulfills it all. He embodies their identity, their vocation, and their roles, all the institutions the sacrificial system, the tabernacle, the temple, the Sabbath, the feast, the law. He fulfills all of it. The identity marker of circumcision, he fulfills it. Offices, prophet, priest, and king throughout Israel, he fulfills it. And key events in Israel's life, such as the Exodus, are fulfilled in Christ. Christ is the man. He is the God-man. He's the fulfillment of all Israel anticipated and hoped for. So all this to say, Jesus is the true Israel. And just to finish this point out, throughout the Gospels, we learn as well that Jesus is the Son of God and the Son of Man. And as the author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 7 and 8, he is the one true high priest. So right here, we've seen, that the, people of God, we've seen the people of God's relationship to that of Jesus. He is their fulfillment. But what about the New Testament people of God? How does the church actually fit into all this? That's letter D, a new people through union with Christ. The new people of God consist of everyone who is covenantally united to Christ, who is the second Adam, who is the seed of Abraham, the new Israel, and the son of David. So we become a part of the people of God by responding in repentance and faith to the one who is the very embodiment of God's people, who is Jesus. We respond to Jesus in this way. And when we do, we're united to him, and we are now part of his body. So what does it mean to be covenantally united to Christ? It means that all that is his becomes yours, and all that is yours becomes his. And how does that happen? It happens through covenant. It's like a marital covenant. So if you think of it this way, when I married my wife, What's mine became hers, and what's hers became mine. We joked last night that my snoring then became her problem of snoring. Union with Christ means his righteousness and standing in glory become mine. His righteousness, his standing, his glory, they become mine, and my sin and condemnation become his. 
This is what those early writings in the second century talked about in the great exchange. The great exchange. So our union with Christ extends to both what he possesses as well as to much of the work that he does, such as the offices of priest and king. So Christians share in the life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, rule, and reign, as well as all the spiritual blessings that come to us through faith in Christ, as Paul talks about in Ephesians 1. So being in Christ, as one theologian put it, means that all that he has done for me representatively becomes mine actually. Being in Christ means that all that he's done for me representatively becomes mine actually. In Christ, Christians are called sons and children. Peter calls us a royal priesthood. We're priests and kings in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. And of course, we're being conformed to the image of the Son, as Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. A lot of the same language for the people of God in the Old Testament is now being picked up and used for the people of God in the New Testament, but that's only in connection and in union with Christ through faith that that happens. So letter E, the church. The church as Israel, or seeds of Abraham, but through the promise. So to the extent that Christ is the seed of Abraham, who brings blessing to the nations, and the new Israel who reflects the very glory and character of God, and to the extent that the church is united to Christ through faith, such that all that is his becomes ours, we too then become Israel, or as Paul puts it in Galatians 6, verse 16. We become the Israel of God. So we become seeds of Abraham, but we're identified with Abraham and Israel through the promise of God to Abraham. So think for a moment. I'm a Richardson by blood because my parents are named Richardson. My wife, Kristen, is a Richardson, but it's not by blood. What is it by? Marriage. Marriage covenant. That's right. It's through a covenantal promise that we made on our, on our wedding day. And so when Jesus and the apostles show up, we learn that it's not really by blood or even by biology. All those things don't matter. What matters is the true covenantal promise Jesus fulfills by his blood. So in Matthew chapter 3, verse 9, Jesus says to the Pharisees and Sadducees, And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Later in chapter 9 of Romans, Paul explains this idea further in verses 6 to 8. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, his literal, physical children. But what does it say? Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Then Paul gives us the, understand, the, yeah, the understanding of this in verse 8. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. And finally, in Galatians 3, 28 and 29, Paul says to the churches of Galatia, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, meaning that we as a church have a new corporate identity in Christ. And then he continues on, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. You are heirs according to promise. 
So the point that's being made is that God's people now make up an international community, both of Jews and Gentiles, who've been spiritually adopted into God's family through faith in Christ. That's the point. It's not physical descent from Abraham that finally matters, but it's receiving the promise that came through Abraham and is fulfilled in Christ through faith, that we become seeds of Abraham. In Christ, the seed of Abraham, blessing has come to the nations. Later, Paul says in Galatians 6, 15 through 16, for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. So with the coming of Christ, the structure of the people of God actually changes. The people of God are no longer constituted by physical descent, but spiritual rebirth. The ethnic people of Israel simply served as a shadow of Christ and secondarily the new covenant church. So Israel's purpose, among other things, was to demonstrate what the true people of God were to be like. Therefore, they received God's presence and God's law in order to do that. But of course, they failed. They needed God's law written upon their hearts by the Spirit so that they may walk in obedience to God's ways. Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, we hear the prophets proclaiming that and being picked up and fulfilled in Christ and secondarily in us in relation to Jesus. So as Paul says, what counts is a new creation. We need to be born again. Those are the people who are part of God's people. So the movement from old covenant to the new is the movement from genealogy Two, regenealogy or regeneration. It's being born again or made a new creation by the Spirit of God. That brings us to letter F. So how do we describe the church? The church, we understand the church as regenerate, right? So to regenerate just means to be, it's rebirth, to be born again. That's what that means. That's what that word regenerate means. So the church as regenerate and baptized. Notice what this means then for the makeup of the church right here. The people of God in the New Testament are no longer held together by ethnic ties or biology. That's not saying that ethnicity isn't important. It's just saying that salvation isn't based upon ethnicity. That's what that's getting at. Those ethnic ties fall away because they were only meant to point to something greater, a supernatural, spirit-created family. So that in Jesus, regardless of our original heritage, we're given new birth certificates, so to speak. The church is a regenerate community. We're a born-again people. This is where our ecclesiology, that is our understanding of the church, emerges from our Christology, our understanding of Christ. How we understand Christ and how he fulfills the covenants helps us to understand who we are as the people of God. It emerges from our Christology and understanding who we are as the church. So who then ought to be baptized. Repentant believers. Someone read Acts 2, verses 36 through 39. Acts 32, or sorry, Acts 2, 36 through 39. So right here we got Peter's first sermon at Pentecost, speaking to Jews. Acts 2, 36 through 39. Don't make me have to call on somebody.
Okay. So the Jews are saying, hey, we're cut to the heart. How are we to respond to this message? We get verses 38 and 39. Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you. And who else is it for? It's for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls, calls to himself. So again, we see Peter is interested in a promise right here. Who receives the promise? Peter says the promises are for you, your children, and all who are far off, which is to say both Jews and Gentiles. It's for all whom the Lord will call, no longer biological descent. It's for those whom the Lord calls to himself, whether near or far, Jew or Gentile. This is true for your children, whom the Lord calls to himself. Your children must be called by God to be a part of the people of God. Those who are called by God to faith in Christ are then to what? To be baptized. Don't miss the final verse right there in verse 41. Very important. Don't miss verse 41. So those who received his word, that's important. They have the cognitive ability to be able to receive the word. They understand what's going on. They can receive it. So those who received the word, accepted that word, the gospel, were then what? They were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. To be baptized, you have to be, be, you have to be called by God, and in response to that, response to that call, you have to receive the gospel in repentance and faith. Don't miss this. Repentant believers are baptized, and then they're added to the body of believers in Jerusalem. So they receive the word, they're baptized, and then they're what? They're literally added to the number of the church there in Jerusalem. It's the same with us today. We receive the gospel, we become repentant believers, we're baptized, right? Outward sign of that inward reality that God has done within us, and then we're added to the number of the local church, wherever we may live throughout the world. Baptism is a church's act, and it's the believer's act. The local church affirms a believer's union with Christ through immersion in water. The believer publicly commits himself or herself to Christ, to Christ and his people. Sorry, my voice is going out, marking themselves off from the world. In other words, baptism binds one to many and many to one. That's what it does. As one author put it, it's those who are in Christ who are the sons of God, those who have put on Christ who are baptized, and those who are Christ who are counted Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So the picture we get in the New Testament is one that consists of believers who've been baptized into the family of God, and that happens in the invisible church made visible, the local church. Letter G. Many of the metaphors uh, for the church root in the Old Testament. So in other words, tracing the storyline of the people of God from Old Testament to New requires us to deal carefully with both matters of continuity and discontinuity. I'm going I'm to talk about that in just a minute under Patterns. So I just emphasize the point of discontinuity right here by describing the movement from genealogy in the Old Testament to regeneration in the New Testament. Being God's people is no longer about physical birth, but about spiritual birth. At the same time, we have to notice that many of the metaphors for the church are actually rooting themselves in the Old Testament. And so I'm just going to give you a couple because we've already seen a lot already. Here are a couple of them. The church is also called the children of the Jerusalem above. Galatians 4. 
We're fellow citizens. And by the way, if you're writing all this down, if you want a bigger, kind of longer sheet of all these, I can send that to you. So don't feel like you have to write them all down. The church is also called fellow citizens with Jewish saints, Ephesians 2. They're called a Jew inwardly in the true circumcision of Romans 2, called the bride of Christ and of God, Isaiah 54, then being seen in Ephesians 5. They're called sheep, such as in Jeremiah 23 and later in Matthew 10. Speaking of Christ's union with the church should determine how we interpret New Testament metaphors for the church, whether they appear in the Old Testament or not. So, for example, the metaphor of the body of Christ in the history of the church has sometimes been interpreted mystically as the whole Christ or the continuation of his incarnation. Yet a biblical theological reading would recommend that the body of Christ, the language of the body of Christ, is covenantal language. It's not mystical language. It means he represents us, and we represent him as his people. The fact that Christ is the head of the body means that he is the covenant mediator and the head of the church. The life of the church is bound up in the life of Christ. That's what that's getting at. Letter H. Final one right here. Culmination in Christ, moving on even past that into new heavens, new earth, the new Jerusalem. So all this leads to the great consummation when God's people will be with him face to face. As John saw in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne of God and before the Lamb. And at the end of Revelation, John writes again in chapter 21, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. God is creating a new bride. He's creating a new nation who will live with him for all eternity and who reflect his character, his glory, eternally, forever, perfectly. Okay, I know that is a whole lot. So, any questions before we move on to biblical theological tools that we saw this morning in that lesson? Any questions? All right. I've let you sit in awkward silence enough. No questions. Okay, how about this? I know that many of you may have questions. Would love to get coffee or lunch with you to talk a little bit more about this. Because these are, these are very big concepts that we're talking about. The people of God and God's place last week. There, are, there is a lot of theological discussion on them. So, if that is you and you know about those theological discussions, we'll be more than happy to chat with you over lunch or coffee. Okay? All right, biblical theological tools that we're using. So let's consider a couple of these. A, covenants. So just shortly right here, clearly the people of God exist as the people of God by virtue of their covenantal inclusion. So this is truth of both Israel and the church. Israel is constituted as God's people through God's covenant with them at Sinai. The New Testament church is instituted as God's people through the new covenant in Jesus' blood. Okay, that's just kind of a very high up one that we've used. We've seen in the covenants. There is, there is a change that happens in how we understand the people of God. We have to go through Christ. 
continuity and discontinuity. So for us to know how Israel and the church are alike and not alike, we first have to ask which covenant each belongs to. We have to look at the covenants that they belong to. When we talk about continuity, we're talking about the unity of the story of the Bible, how one type is similar to another type that it foreshadows. That's what we're getting at with continuity. So for example, a line of continuity between the members of the old covenant that we saw this morning and the members of the new covenant is seen in all of those metaphors of the church that are rooted in the Old Testament. That is a line of continuity between the old covenant people of God and the new covenant people of God. However, discontinuity looks at how the fulfillment of a pattern or type differs from the type itself. It's not just a movement from lesser or greater or one of a difference of degree. It's a difference in the substance, in the fulfillment itself. It's the point of the story. It's what the type pointed to. It's supposed to be the real, actual thing in which it pointed to. It's the difference between the substance of it and the fulfillment itself. So in our lesson today, one of the points of discontinuity is seen in the movement from understanding the people of God in the Old Testament biologically or ethnically to understanding the people of God in the New Testament through promise and regeneration, the new birth. That's a line of discontinuity. There's a change that has happened. Christ is redefining who the people of God really are. Then we come to what we call topology. I'll explain this. Topology. To say something is a type of something else in the Bible means that real people, such as Israel, real events, such as the Exodus, and institutions, such as the temple or the sacrificial system, match one another in some way. They match one another in some way. So, for example, Noah and Moses match one another because both were preserved through water while others died. One is a type of the other. Not only do they match, but the movement from the initial type actually escalates. It heightens anticipation throughout the biblical storyline as, as it finds its fulfillment in Christ as its ultimate expression. That's what topology is looking at. There is this idea of escalation or heightened anticipation that builds and builds and builds until we find its fulfillment in Christ. So, for example, we saw this in our lesson with Adam being a type of the Son of Man and the Son of God. Abraham is a type of Adam. Israel is a type of son, as is David. And then the climax of fulfillment to all of these is Christ, who is the true Son of God, the Son of Man, the Son of David, the offspring of Abraham, the true Israel. And by virtue of our union with Christ, the church is the new multi-ethnic people of God who dwell in the presence of God's glory for all eternity. So that's topology. What about promise and fulfillment? The final one right here. So we saw the theme of promise and fulfillment in our story as well. All the promises and purposes given to Adam, given to Abraham, given to Moses, and given to David are now ours because of Christ. Christ is their fulfillment. And by union with Christ through faith, they become ours. The promises of blessing and a great name given to Abraham, those are now ours in Christ. The promises of an everlasting dominion given to, given to David and repeated through Daniel, those are now ours in Christ, as Paul says, for all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20. All right, so let's put this together. 
and then I'll take questions. Point three, systematizing it all, putting it all together. So right here, we just simply want to consider what is the church? What is the church, and what implications might this have for our lives? So first point right there under a, on A. The church is a justified and holy people. The church is a justified and holy people. So by virtue of our union with Christ, we possess his righteousness. We've been justified or accepted before God through Christ's death in our place. Now as God's people, we reflect his holy character for his glory, what the original man and woman were to do. And now as God's people, we do that. We're to be holy as God is holy. We live for him and not for ourselves. That's the first thing the church is. The church is also a united people. By virtue of our union with Christ, we're united not only to Christ, but also to one another. For example, in Ephesians chapter 2, 1 and 10, explains our forgiveness and then our vertical reconciliation with God. By grace, you have been saved. It's an act of God, our vertical reconciliation. And then, interestingly, not only are you saved before God, but you're brought into a family in, chapter, uh, in the same chapter in verses 11 through 20 in Ephesians, where he shows us the horizontal reconciliation there in, in verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So we come to faith in Christ. We're now a part of a family, new people of God. To be converted is to be, ma- is to be made a member of Christ's body. When mom and dad adopt you, you get new parents, but you also get a new set of brothers and sisters. Sonship comes first, brotherhood comes second. That's to say, conversion signs you up for a family photo. C, each one of the metaphors for the church has the job to do for describing something about our union in Christ. So it teaches us something different about what a church and its members are like. So to describe the church as a family is to speak about its relational intimacy, its shared identity. To call it a body is to say that members are mutually dependent upon one another, but they have different roles within the church. To refer to it as the temple of the Spirit is to say that God specially identifies himself and dwells with these people. The language of vine and branch communicates the church's dependence upon Jesus as the true vine and our dependence upon his word for our life. There's nothing like, there's nothing like in the whole world like the local church. Which brings us to D. Each of these metaphors gets put into practice locally. Every biblical metaphor for the church becomes embodied. That is, it puts on a body in the local church. The family, the body, the temple, the people. All of these descriptions become com- they become concrete in particular, pra- in particular places. They get put into practice locally. So, you might say, but Trey, don't all Christians everywhere belong to the family of God? We would say, well, yes, of course they do. But God gives you the opportunity to act like a family with your local church. You treat them first and foremost as your sisters and your brothers. Right here at UBC or at FBC Rogers or at New Heights or the Hill, you have the people of God. You have the temple of the Spirit, and you have the body of Christ. You don't just have an arm or an ankle of Christ's body. The universal church is present in the local church. You need a body of Christ to be the body of Christ. 
You need a family to be the family of God. So how do we fulfill Jesus' command to love one another in John 13? How do we fulfill Paul's command to carry each other's burdens in Galatians 6? How do you obey Peter's words, each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others in 1 Peter 4? How do we fulfill that? Well, you do that locally through membership in a local church. That's how you obey those commands. All right, the final one, final point right here. These metaphors aren't really metaphors, but shadows. So in the new heavens and new earth, the metaphor of marriage will give way to the real substance. It's a shadow. It's going to give way to the real substance, union with Christ, perfect union with him. Marriage is the shadowy outline which points to the real reality of Christ and his bride, the church. The same is true, I think, for all biblical metaphors for the church. They are shadows of something that's greater. Why do you think that God created brothers and sisters? Again, it's so that everyone gets a dim sense of the true reality which begins now in the local church and awaits us completely in glory. Branches on the vine, it gives us a dim picture of our dependence on the word of Christ. That's what that's doing. It's a shadow of the true substance. There's nothing in the world like the local church and its members. The relationships that we share in this community will ultimately prove more interconnected than a physical body. It's a shadow of what's to come. We share in the local church, we ultimately prove we're more interconnected than a physical body. It's more safe than a father's embrace, more than just brotherly love, more resilient than a stone house. It's holier than a priesthood, and on and on. This is what Jesus has prepared for us in glory, and this is what we begin to practice right now at UBC. We practice it with all those still sinful and still strange people who often step on our toes and whose toes we also often step on. Any questions with this entire lesson as we finish it up? You got a statement. <laughs> it's a lot. Yeah, and if you want to go back and listen to this, they are online. The audio is online, I think, at UBC's podcast on iTunes or whatever it is. More, yeah, slower. Yeah, so I think the first step would be to talk to Stephen Martin. I think that's the first step. I think it's to talk to Stephen and just to say you'd like to kind of expand this on out. Joe? Yep. The differences between the systems. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, okay. Real quickly, I can't, like, when I'm talking about dispensationalism and covenant theology, I can't go into all of it, okay? So you're going to have to just kind of bear with me on that. Um, 
And if you have more questions, I'm happy to meet with you at some point throughout the week, and we can chat more about it. But there's just no way within two minutes that I can break that down. It's impossible. So the question about the church, how do they understand the church? So uh, for Israel and God's people, well, Israel is God's people. What am I saying? For Israel and uh, the church, okay, and what we would call uh, a system of theology called dispensationalism, wants to separate these two out and to functionally pretty much what ends up happening is there are kind of two plans of God for both, if that makes sense. So they're kind of, they're separate, okay? This is what we would call, or personally, what I would hold to as there's too much discontinuity between them. There is more continuity than that rather than just two plans of two peoples of God, okay? That's what we'd hold to. Uh, or that's what dispensationalists would hold to. Um, now, covenant theology, which is a lot of your Presbyterians, covenant theology, we would, or personally, I would say, would holds, holds to too much continuity. They're going to draw a straight line into the church and see too much similarity from Israel to the church. Whereas we would say, ah, but you, there's a little bit of discontinuity right here. What do you know? The cross. I did not even plan that. I did not plan that. Therefore, it's meant of God, and you're to accept this wholeheartedly. Uh, so we would say uh, there's more discontinuity with that in how we understand the people of God. You've got to go through Jesus. That's a big deal. And so I would personally say, I, personally, I don't hold that Israel, or sorry, that the church is the replacement of Israel. I think what's happening right here is that God is redefining who his people are. He's reconstituting his people. Who Israel was supposed to be, right, in these new covenant realities that the prophets were speaking about, where the, in, where the Spirit indwells us and writes his law on our hearts, that comes to us secondarily, or what we would call mediated continuity. I Meaning it comes to us through Christ. It comes to us secondarily. It's indirect. Okay, so there's discontinuity in that indirectness and discontinuity in that secondaryness. It's not just a flat line, Israel to the church, but rather we would say, no, you've got to find the true substance in Jesus, and then as a result of that, it applies to us. Okay? That's what we would say this system is. Yeah, so you're going to get into this whole... bring them into the covenant community so long as they have a parent who is a believer yeah that's where we would say there's too much there's too much continuity and we'd say new testament reality is what new birth it's regeneration that's who the true people of god are that's where we would disagree with our presbyterian brothers and sisters in christ understand okay you can hold to you know like they're you, there can be differences on this, okay? This is not a massive gospel issue. I do think it affects how you read the word, but I think in how we read the word, we have to read it redemptive historically as it unfolds and it progresses, as God is progressing and unfolding his plan throughout scripture through the covenants. I think that's how the author's meant for it to be read. That's how it's been unfolded to us. And so that's what I would say. That's a short form of a whole loaded discussion. 
from what I talked about last week and God's people, which y'all didn't ask any questions, I was like, all right, I'll, uh, I'll get out of that one. Uh, and then as well with, with, God's, uh, yeah, with God's place and then this week with God's people. That also has political implications, but we're not going to go there. All right, let me pray for us.